welcome to the journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, what happened in the UK's general election? I say this week, I mean really early in the morning. We're trying to get you up to speed on what happened overnight in the UK general election. And probably the thing that sums it up is a stonking mandate. That's what Boris Johnson's immediate reaction to the result was. The exit poll at 10pm on polling day was pretty unambiguous. The Conservative Party were due to take a massive majority and so it has turned out. We are here this morning to catch you up on all the big news from the count from that massive victory and also to what has happened in Northern Ireland and some of the standout moments. To do that I'm joined by TU Dublin politics doctor Kevin Cunningham in studio as well as our three of our election uh, Uh, reporters who have been watching across the water for the past six weeks but who've also been here overnight for the past I don't know what probably feels like 48 hours to them (laughs) I was going to say a long time (laughs) they are fueled by coffee and uh, food from our Christmas party last night Deputy Editor Christine Bowen reporters Ronan Duffy and Dominic McGrath hi everybody morning um Christine we know now there's a a conservative majority um will you just take us through the the headline results, please. So I think every, we'd expected a tight race beforehand and what became clear immediately once the exit poll came out at 10 o'clock is that this wasn't going to be a tight uh, tight race at all, that this was actually an overwhelming victory for the Tories. So I suppose the focus wasn't so much on what would happen, which we'd kind of expected, would there be a hung parliament, would there not? But instead it was about why it happened and about what would happen next. Um, so we see the Tories did much better than expected. Labour had a worse night, very few silver linings for Labour. And then it was bad news for the Liberal Democrats and for the DUP too. And I think it's fair to say that the campaign itself over the past six weeks was quite grim. It seemed like a lot of politicians didn't themselves enjoy it. Um, And I think part of that was because the two main parties never quite engaged with each other in it. It felt like the election was happening um, in a silo almost because they never locked horns. They were fighting their own campaigns. They were trying to mobilise voters rather than battling each other. Um, And so we saw this in the way that, say, you know, for example, the Tories in particular kind of ignored or eschewed the the TV debates. And I suppose for them, there's a lot to lose in a TV debate. If Boris Johnson goes on head to head with Andrew Neil, there's the risk that, you know, he says something or he, he, he says something that he didn't mean to. So instead... We saw Boris Johnson focusing very much on just one clear message, get Brexit done. Um, it reminds me a bit of the Fianna Fáil's a lot done, a lot more to do, in that it might not be elegant, but it's very, very effective. So overall, it just made for a very dramatic night, even if the broad strokes um, had been expected. And we kept a little audio diary over the course of um, the evening, just of the, the kind of the main points that happened in the newsroom. Um, so I think we're going to listen to that now. So it's about 30 seconds to 10 o'clock now. There's a gang of us here in the newsroom um, and we're waiting for the exit poll results to come out from BBC, Sky and ITV. So once they do, we're going to have a really strong indication of how Britain voted, um, whether this was a Brexit election, whether voters took uh, the Conservatives' message on board or whether Labour were able to break through with their approach, which was to say that it wasn't a Brexit election and it was about everything else. So I'm going to go to one of my colleagues who's right beside me, uh, Dominic. Hi. Can I ask you, uh, what do you think are the key things for us to look out for uh, just before the exit poll results come out? Yeah, so the big thing everyone's been talking about is the Labour red wall. It's basically these sort of traditionally Labour seats um, in the north of the country. Um, They are now tipped to potentially fall to the Conservatives. They're sort of leave voting areas and have been very vulnerable. So we'll see over the next few hours whether that's actually happened. Great. Okay, we're going to have the exit poll now in a couple of seconds. Thanks, Dominic. Okay, so it's now, what, 2.41 in the morning. Uh, I'm here with my colleague Stevie McDermott. Stevie, do you want to fill us in on uh, where things are at right now? 
Uh, yeah, so things really aren't looking good for Labour. Uh, projected to kind of come in under 200 seats, but like in kind of one indication of a seat that they have lost is Blythe Valley, which they've held since the 1950s. That's gone over the Tories. Uh, in Scotland, it's looking pretty good for the SNP. They're kind of on track to win over 50 seats. And then things are pretty interesting in the North as well. Um, uh, John Finucan is look, uh, looks like he's going to take uh, Nigel Dodds' seat in North Belfast. Uh, and Alliance's Stephen Farry has taken Lady Sylvia Herbman's seat in North Down. So it's possible that there will be more uh, nationalists and uh, Alliance seats than DUP, but yeah, all to play for with Mertz we seen. And that'll be the first time we'd seen that in Northern Ireland? Yeah, it's an interesting situation developing up there. Yeah. Okay, nice one. Thanks. Okay, Sean, it's just coming up to half three in the morning here. We've just had one of the big, uh, first big shocks of the of the night. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn um, has just announced that he's going to step down as leader of Labour. Yeah, so he said he's going to step down, but he hasn't said when. Mm. He said, so obviously it's been a crushing defeat for his party. And he said that there's a process of reflection that needs to happen now. Because their whole strategy about trying to galvanise people on the NHS and all, all the other things that they wanted to kind of land on they didn't they failed they, they basically it was failed. a Brexit election it was a Brexit election mm. and uh, the common refrain that he wasn't clear on what his Brexit policy was has come back to haunt him mm. and you look at places where Labour had won seats since the beginning of time places like Sedgefield um, Kensington places like that where they were safe seats where you would, couldn't imagine a Tory winning a Tory won yeah. like Dennis Skinner has been an MP since 1970 he lost his seat mm. in Bolsover there and that's the one that We'll put the Conservatives over the line. It's it's a crushing defeat for him and he has to go now. Okay. Thanks, Sean. Ronan, we obviously don't have exact numbers just yet as everything is still ongoing, but do we know in or around what kind of majority the Conservatives are looking at? I think we're, at the moment we're looking at kind of a majority of up in the high 80s. I think that was kind of clear from early on in the night and I think it's towards the end of the count. I think that's, that's, how, that's how it's going to end up. Kev, that's, is that what the polls predicted in this case? Yeah, in a way, well, in that, okay, so coming into the end of the campaign, there was a trend towards the Labour Party that was quite public, I guess. But I was working with some YouGov data, and what we could see actually in the background is that trend kind of started to stall and reverse, actually, in the last kind of 48 hours, 24 hours. I think as the narrative emerged, uh, certainly for Conservative voters, uh, that it was going to be tight, that that actually helped the Conservative Party and push things back in that direction. The overall numbers aren't really very far from what kind of the projections were maybe about two weeks ago. So it seems that when the Leeds Hospital incident occurred, there was a bit of a movement towards Labour, which facilitated this narrative that it was going to be tight, which then, you know, which wasn't there, if you remember, in 2017. So it was kind of, I think the polls probably got it relatively close enough. I mean, in, in some sense... The polls all probably overestimated the Labour Party in this election in the same way they underestimated Labour in the previous election and this kind of pendulum swinging between over and underestimating the Labour Party coming up to it. But I don't think they were miles off, really, uh, in terms of was there is there a massive Tory majority? Yeah, there, there is. You know. And that means that a lot of seats that are traditionally Labour um, went the other way and there's been chat about how the Tory party broke the red wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, uh, so there's lots of constituencies, absolutely. And these are, I mean, the best predictor of whether a constituency was going to go Tory, which was Labour, was the proportion of, say, Labour leavers that it had from the last election. That is 
the number of people who voted both Labour in 2017 and Leave in the prior uh, referendum. That was a massive predictor of whether they were going to actually move in that direction. Um, it, It would suggest, therefore, that the party's Brexit position was problematic in that in this election it took a very much stronger remain position, whereas the past, the previous election, uh, it was kind of more neutral, I guess. Um, however, uh, some of the MPs that did particularly badly, like Caroline Flint, would have been kind of the kind of more more arch levers within the party. Um, and her the swing in Don Valley, her constituency was actually larger than most other Labour leave kind of constituencies. So it's hard to tell. There's a big uh, debate now immediately emerging between the kind of Corbyn gang and uh, the rest of the party as to whether Corbyn and left wing, uh, his left wing agenda was the issue or whether it was the Brexit position. Um, that'll certainly play out in the leadership battle that's going to emerge very soon, I guess. Yeah. Ronan, was this a Brexit election that Labour were trying to avoid? Mm. You know, as Kevin said, I think that was where the debate is, is going to be now. But I think if you look back over the last couple of years, I think we, we had the election in 2017 and I think we were talking about it throughout the night that, you know, Brexit had happened the year before that and everyone would have assumed that Brexit was the major issue in that election and in many ways it was, but it wasn't reflected in the results. But I think what we've seen now is that, you know, the British public have been battered over the head with Brexit since that. I mean, that's two and a half years when Brexit has been top of the agenda, top of the news all the time and it just kept coming up every time people were asked, what do they want from this election? They want, you know, the end of Brexit. Now, as we all know, this isn't going to be the ends of Brexit, but Boris Johnson and the Conservatives managed to convince people that this is what you're voting on. So, I mean, you, you cannot get away from the fact that they were successful in getting that message across that this is what you're voting on. And I think that's what we've seen, you know, in, in Labour seats. Um, if you look at where they lost seats, they've lost in places like Bishop Auckland, where they've held seats, seats, a seat since the 30s, Blyde Valley, um, they had a seat there since the 50s. These are Leave constituencies where they've lost seats. And, and that's where, you know, the, the, the key votes were lost with Labour. I was getting texts from people in England yesterday saying my dad or my granddad or my friends were lifetime Labour voters and they turned Tory for this election to get Brexit done. Is get Brexit done one of the best political slogans of our time? I guess it's a it's another three word slogan. I think it's a it's interesting how these kind of three word simplistic slogans are kind of um, getting through to people. I think one of the most interesting things about the British political environment at this point in time and I've looked at kind of what predicts voting behaviour in lots of different countries and and one of the unique things about British politics is that where you get your news from uh, dictates who you vote for. So in Ireland you'll have lots of listeners here who vote for very different parties but certainly in the UK it's extremely polarised. If you read the Telegraph you vote Tory more so than class, anything that you could possibly imagine. You're talking about 90%, 95% of these people are voting Tory and all that sort of stuff it makes it very hard for any messaging, any policy to get any cut through. And, and the Labour voters are all online, as we all probably saw if anyone was on Twitter. Mm. Um, it's massively skewed in different ways. So everyone's kind of talking to one another. And I think the proportion of people that are getting their information, uh, their news online uh, from Twitter and all that sort of stuff is also limited by the fact that Twitter and that sort of thing is is filtered and limited by, you know, who you're following and that sort of stuff. So. You know, if you if you watch the BBC or if you watch the or if you read the Telegraph, that's going to have a huge influence on your voting behaviour. So, 
any sort of policy messaging, whether whether Jeremy Corbyn was talking about nationalising various different things, although I don't think policy is actually really um, directly very very important in terms of election campaigns. But that sort of stuff isn't going to get much cut through when, you know, people are only hearing their side of the debate. So I, that was one of the reasons why I thought this was going to be quite stable in terms of the campaign um, going uh, in this particular campaign. Yeah, there was very little focus on the Conservative manifesto, right, Ronan? Like, we like do we know what they want to talk about outside of getting Brexit done? Well, I think when Labour announced their manifesto, it was really big news. We heard about their plan to, you know, roll out broadband to the entire country. These kind of um, specific pledges um, from the Conservatives were not, you know, delved into in, in the same way. It was very much concentrated on their Brexit position and they weren't necessarily challenged on that beyond the fact that, I mean, Boris Johnson kept saying that, you know, we'll get Brexit done by the 31st of January. He was very rarely um, questioned on the fact that, well, he promised to do it by the 31st of October. I mean, during the debate, that was something that Corbyn could have brought up on several occasions and never really landed that blow and it was quite an obvious one for him. I think there's going to be a big issue too for all the people who voted for the Conservatives in the hope that it's going to bring about, you know, Brexit and also um, kind of harks back to this Britain of, of, of you know, the 1950s or, you know, this kind of great image of what Britain used to be like. Um, and then actually what... Uh, Boris Johnson and the Conservatives are talking about what their vision of Brexit is, is very, very different. It's much more about um, a free market, um, light on regulation, um, you know, as they call it, Singapore on Thames. And that's incredibly different. So I just wonder about the divergence that's there between what was promised and what voters expect and what the Tories are actually going to do. And one of the things that is really important to recognise as well is that these kind of leave voting and traditionally Labour constituencies this might be a fleeting um, thing with the Tories. Mm. It'll take maybe another, maybe two, three elections to determine whether this is a permanent shift and whether the Tories have changed minds, have changed hearts in these, again, traditionally staunchly Labour places. Because if they have, that's the biggest political shake-up in the last, I don't know, 40, 50 exactly. years. Exactly. Yeah. The one place that lay, or the Conservatives haven't um, done well in is Scotland. Um, so what have we seen happen in Scotland number-wise? Yeah, so Scotland, um, obviously, it's been an SNP stronghold for a long time now at the expense of the Labour Party. Um, tonight, um, or whatever time we're on. Um, <laughs> it's I morning, Dominic. Um, we haven't slept in a number of hours. <laughs> um, so uh, the SNP's done very well. They're now on 48 um, seats. That's an increase of 13. And so that raises the prospect, of course, of a second uh, independence uh, referendum. We do expect that some, that's something Nicola Sturgeon is going to appeal formally to uh, Boris Johnson to give her power to call a referendum. He will probably say no. That sets up another constitutional crisis. So uh, that's something to look forward to over the coming guests, days and weeks. But I guess for now, all we can say is that the SNP did very, very well. And they're you know, very confident. They obviously um, unseated uh, Joe Swinson. That's a great even morale boost for the party. So they did very well. Yeah, people will probably have seen Sturgeon celebrating the, their win um, in that constituency. Um, Northern Ireland, I guess, is um, one of the things that I have kind of looked at over the last week or so is how Northern Ireland really doesn't feature in election talk if you're in mainland UK, even to the point that you, the YouGov polls don't even kind of recognise that Northern Ireland exists. exists. Yeah. Um, Dominic, talk us through who were the casualties, who were the big winners of Northern Ireland? So on a macro level, in some ways, Northern Ireland, all the parties are casualties, despite how well they did, simply because 
Boris Johnson's, you know, quite impressive majority means that there's no influence for any party now, um, especially the DUP in Westminster. Um, the DUP, of course, they did really badly. Um, they really couldn't have done worse. Everything we thought would go wrong did go wrong. They lost um, North Belfast to Sinn Féin's John Finucane. Um, that means losing Nigel Dodds, the deputy leader, a real party heavyweight. They had their eyes on North Down, uh, Lady Sylvia Herman's constituency. Um, when she stepped down, they really hoped they could seize that. They lost to the Alliance. Um, and they lost, of course, in Belfast South, Emma Little Pengelly, um, a really impressive sort of um, candidate, a very different kind of DUP candidate. And now she's gone. So as I say... Who did she lose out to? She lost out to Claire Hanna um, of the SDLP. And on that, really, the SDLP had a fantastic night. Um, if you'd asked anyone even nine months ago, we all would have said the SDLP was on its knees. It had lost foil at the last election. Um, the, the constituency of John Hume. It really was, you know, reaching out anywhere for alliances. You saw uh, Mark Durkin running for Fine Gael at the European elections. You saw the link up with Fianna Fáil. It was a real a desperate situation for the party. Now they have two MPs. Colm Eastwood got elected in foil on a massive, massive majority. I think it was um, nearly, I think, 19,000 votes defeating Sinn Féin, which is a really impressive um, result. A statement of intent, really, for exactly. the party. Exactly. Yeah. You could see him when he was sort of speaking afterwards, and it really was a game changer, I think, for him and for the party. So the SDLP has done very well out of this. Oh, it's a huge thing for them. There's a whole thing about funding as well. If you get two MPs to Parliament, you get an enormous amount of funding, basically. And the party, the SDLP, is, you know, not financially in, in the best position because, you know, when you go from being a larger party and shrinking, you have these uh, legacy costs that uh, will kind of damage your, your finances. And, and, and you know, it's a huge thing. I mean, it's I think one of the interesting things, the last couple of years, there's, there's been so many elections in Northern Ireland, but the SDLP have kind of persistently stayed above, let's say, where the UUP, the UUP have been kind of a very steady decline, whereas the SDLP have actually kind of hung on and levelled out. And this is the first time you see them kind of lifting up, uh, which is quite interesting. I think the other thing is that is interesting is the Alliance vote. Now, the fact that the Alliance party is now ahead of the SDLP and UUP will create a very different dynamic in Northern Ireland politics. Because normally, because they're behind both, they usually get eliminated first in any sort of elections. They have SDV, obviously, for their elections. Now, if they're ahead of both, it means that they're going to get transfers possibly from the SLP and the EUP and can, can change the whole dynamic in Northern Ireland and actually bring them even further up into the into the picture, I think. Yeah, with the Alliance especially, um, I was always trying to look at the Alliance on a kind of... Um you sort of split Northern Ireland in two because they traditionally do very well in the east, sort of in down, in parts of Belfast. And actually, if you look at um, the west, um, they actually did very well. They increased their vote, I think, in most of the constituencies in the west. In West Tyrone, they increased by 7.4%, which is really impressive um, for a party that, again, does not really do well outside of its sort of core heartland. Speaking of the dynamic of Northern Ireland, what does this do for the likelihood of Stormont getting back up and running? Yes, yeah, so in some ways, it's kind of the perfect um, sort of stew of results, for lack of a better word, to get Stormont back up and running. Um, so the DUP lacking any real um, fulcrum to sort of influence Brexit in Westminster will probably want to return now to Stormont and try and get it up and running. They've talked about that um, increasingly over the last few weeks, but this would really add, I guess, motivation for them. It was something that Jeffrey Donaldson referenced in his victory speech. Um, in many ways as well, Sinn Féin 
did the right kind of well. They didn't do too well to, I guess, scare off the DUP. Um, and they didn't do badly enough for them not to want to sort of look like they're um, compromising in any way. So I think we're at a, a good moment if we want to get Northern Ireland back up and running again. And hopefully we can see some negotiations going well on Monday. It's interesting that's the first time that there'll be more nationalist MPs than unionist. Kev, just one thing, you mentioned STV voting there. The UK has first passed the post. How relevant is that when you're looking at the Conservatives getting such a huge majority? I mean, you know, if they had our system, it'd be very different, obviously. I mean, it would be proportional. Uh, it'd be completely different. Um, there, I mean, it was interesting to see Nigel Farage talking about <laughs> political reform. He was talking about establishing a reform party of some sort to talk about uh, changing the electoral system. I mean, with Boris Johnson in there right now, I think he's going to be in there. Certainly, I mean, I can't see them not going through their full term in this case. Um, I can't see why he would want to have an early election between now and 2024. I also think just on that second thing uh, that it will be very difficult for the Labour Party to win the next general election in 2024. And so you're talking about another 10 years of the Conservatives in power because there's a really interesting thing called first-term incumbency. When an MP ent- uh, wins a constituency for the first time, like in these you know, so-called Labour heart- heartlands, um, they're likely to get re-elected. And that's why it was very difficult for uh, the, con- the, cons- uh, the Conservatives to do well in 2005, when, broadly speaking, they, the Labour and the Conservative Party got pretty much the same vote share in 2005, but Labour hung on because of this kind of massive incumbency factor. I think that's kind of the overnight covered and caught, caught us up exactly what we, where we're at first thing Friday morning. Just wanted to ask you all what your kind of standout moments from the campaign that can be from the last few hours or from the last six weeks, which feels like a lifetime. Uh, who wants to go first, Ronan? Um, it's kind of difficult to pick up a stand, pick out a standout moment, but I think one of the things that was very illustrative was when Jeremy Corbyn sat down with Andrew Neil and did that interview and repeatedly refused to apologise for the anti-Semitism problem in the Labour Party. I mean, you could argue whether or not, you know, he should have apologised, but what's also noticeable is that Boris Johnson didn't even do the interview. He refused to do the interview. He felt like he didn't need to do the interview and so it proved. And if someone has that kind of... Um, power, to, for want of a better word, you know, that, that just shows that he, he was on course to him because he knew he didn't need to do the interview. Christine, your moment of the, I was going to say your moment of the decade, I'm really skipping ahead of myself. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite, just of the last six weeks. Um, so I've picked two moments, but I've picked them for the same reason. So please let me get away with this. Um, one of them is about a bit, um, if you cast your mind back towards the start of the campaign, it was when Boris Johnson was videoed saying that there would be no border in the Irish Sea as a result of his Brexit deal. So that was my first moment. The second one was the moment when Boris Johnson was interviewed, another Boris moment. Um, he was being interviewed by an ITV reporter about um, a young boy who had to sleep on the floor of a hospital in Leeds um, while he was being treated. And Boris Johnson was asked by the reporter if he would look at a photograph of the boy. He refused and he put the reporter's phone in his pocket. So I picked both of those reasons because they stood out to me so much um, for the same reason because firstly they relied on social media for the image to be shared and to be distributed the video and the image and the second one was facts became a really important issue in both of them about um, the truth and what was true and what wasn't for instance Boris Johnson saying that there wasn't going to be a border in the RSC in his own deal and then 
that seemed like a very unusual thing for for a prime minister to say. Um, and then the third reason was that it just showed that kind of the Teflon quality of Boris Johnson, that he got away with these two things, which in any other campaign would have been a huge issue, would have been absolutely massive. And the 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 boy sleep, found sleeping on the floor of the hospital, it was a big issue, but I don't think it quite landed in the way that you might have expected it to. Um, so they'd be my two standout moments. I think they're the two for me that would, would resonate the most. Yeah, probably they land on social media and they land in media, but not in... But not in voters. Yeah. Nobody, no, it, it seems like from looking at the results that these weren't things that voters were actually, were talking about. It was very much an echo chamber discussion. It was, it was journalists and people and activists discussing it, but it didn't, did it, I don't think it went beyond that. Dominic, your moment of the campaign or the night? Yeah, so if Christine can pick two, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna add some context to uh, my moment. Um, We're just breaking all the rules. <laughs> sorry about this. Um, so really, there was a moment um, during the night when the BBC's Nick Robinson he mentioned that Corbyn will want to resign straight away. He said that he won't want to sit on the green benches and he won't want to face the humiliation of dealing with Boris Johnson. And we sort of stopped. I think all of us were like, wow, that's a really harsh thing to say. But it kind of made me think of, you know, 2017, Corbyn mania, him on the stage at Glastonbury. This was a man who was triumphant, even though he didn't win an election. You know, he really captured, I guess, the zeitgeist, the hearts and minds of people. And to go from that to, you know, someone suggesting you can't even face, you know, your opposition, the prime minister, like it really reminded us that, or reminded me anyway, that... I guess among all the numbers and the seats flipping and the coloured charts and maps, like it is really human. Like politics is about humans who have to face each other um, after these horrible, horrible defeats and horrible, horrible nights. And I guess it was that human element that really struck the chord with me on a, I guess, an otherwise somewhat uneventful night. Yeah, I was going to say for the campaign that didn't quite... Um, there weren't very moments where we felt like we were seeing the candidates as humans. It felt yeah. very choreographed. It felt very um, planned and structured. And I, I think you're right. Like I had the same reaction when I saw that this morning. Mm. Yeah, because it only really turns into the sport of the competition when the, the voting box is open. Exactly. <laughs> uh, great. Thanks so much, guys. I think we're fully caught up. and We know now that we're going into another 10 years of the Conservative Party, as Kevin Cunningham has told us. Um, go home, get some sleep. And thank you very much for listening. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Kevin and the Journal.E's overnight team of Christine, Ronan and Dominic. Just a reminder before we go about another podcast from the Journal.E. Stardust, a six-part special, looks back on St. Valentine's Night in Dublin 1981 when 48 young people lost their lives in a nightclub fire. Hearing from the bereaved, the first responders and those who have been fighting for justice, reporter Sean Murray and the team ask, how did Ireland handle such a tragedy? And was much of what happened in the four decades since the fire dictated by class? All six episodes are now available wherever you listen to your podcasts. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by executive producer Christine Bohan, producer Aoife Barry, assistant producer Nikki Ryan and tech operator Laura Byrne. If you're enjoying the episodes, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And more importantly, share with a friend who you think will enjoy them. Thank you and catch you next time.